No, you tell it. No, you. I'm not telling it. You should totally tell it. <laughs> well, you should tell it. No, you tell it. Hello, and welcome to Know You Tell It, a hybrid story incubator slash performance series. Each Know You Tell It participant develops their own nonfiction piece on the page, then switches with a partner to perform each other's work on stage. Because nothing informs your story like hearing someone else perform your story. In celebration of Pride and the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Uprising, for this, our 50th podcast episode, we wanted to share some of our favorite LGBTQ stories from years past. From our recent Snapped show... At Dixon Place, a drag queen offers handy advice about standing one's ground in Lessons from the Queen, written by Rob Lee Davis, and read for us here by story partner and Lambda Literary Fellow, Mariam Bazid. Lessons from the Queen. I am continually grateful. I'm not a child of this modern age. The awkwardness of my youth exists solely in thick photo albums neatly tucked away in cabinets at my parents' house. It's not out of shame for the me then. It's just a sigh of relief that it didn't play out publicly. Cell phones filming and Twitter on fire. The 11-year-old me would have definitely been victim to today's viral videos and retweets. In 1984, kids were still spreading stories in 140 characters or less. It's, it's just we ran home to a telephone attached to the wall to share the news at lightning speed before our parents said, that's enough phone for tonight. <laughs> it was a different time. And news traveled slower. But as a kid then, it still felt like the whole world was watching. In reality, my viewers were the kids assembled on the playground of a New Jersey elementary school to watch the bully threatening to beat me up. Again. The fifth grade me wasn't particularly tall, strong, or outspoken. I'd been home tutored for five months of that school year, wearing two full leg casts after knee surgery. If anything, I was bookish, a little chubby, and into the performing arts. (laughs) (laughs) An 11-year-old boy, Victim to the slings and arrows of other 11-year-old boys just beginning to comprehend themselves as masters of the universe. Maybe it was the fact that they wanted to be Kevin Bacon in Footloose and I was more fascinated with Daryl Hannah and Splash. (laughs) (laughs) Or that Jump by by Van Halen was the macho dude song of the moment, but Denise Williams' Let's Hear It for the Boy resonated more. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever it was that I radiated as different and put all eyes on me. It always began with the sound of a snap. What's up, sissy boy? I remember with clarity every voice that ever spoke those words. Always yelling them loud enough for everyone to hear. Always snapping their fingers in what they believed to be the most stereotypical way possible, but truth be told, their snapping skills were very weak. (laughs) (laughs) Straight boys attempting Queenie always end up looking like Zorro having an (laughs) epilepsy. I saw you looking at me in the locker room. That statement is designed to freeze you in your tracks. Like those harsh spotlights police put in dangerous neighborhoods 
to keep people from coming out, well, coming out, wasn't on the agenda for fifth graders in the mid-80s. The expectation was that you retreat further into the closet, <laughs> locking the door from the inside and putting up a barricade to prevent you from leaving the darkness. Straight people are not, aren't conscious of their burgeoning sexuality because it's a thing that's simply being allowed to happen. It's not being challenged. But when you're gay, <laughs> it plays out in real time. You recognize it because you feel it. It has weight. It expands. I saw you looking at me. Always an odd argument because I went out of my way in every gymnasium scenario to make sure I wasn't looking at anyone to suppress any sudden bodily excitement. At 11, you have yet to master controlling your excitement, and your, gen your genitals only very occasionally offer you a warning the party's about to get started. <laughs> <laughs> and then, before I could register it, a fist would come at me. In a, in a generation of WrestleMania-watching boys, these fights typically involved a lot of body blows and kicks. My stomach, back, and shoulders bore the brunt of the pain. I never took my tear-stained face to any adults because that would require disclosing the reason for the fight and acknowledging my accusers were right, I was gay. But it was 1984. You didn't talk about those things. I didn't have value in society. There was an anti-gay Republican in the White House. Some things don't change. <laughs> in those days, I didn't think of myself as a violent person, routinely retreating and ending up the bruised loser without a belief that I could ever win. Today, I still wouldn't say I'm a violent, but I've grown. <laughs> I've matured, and if push comes to shove, I can stand tall, head held high, and state proudly, my name is Rob Lee Davis, and I will come. <laughs> Flash forward to New York City, the late 90s. Hansen was mm bopping, <laughs> and Biggie was hypnotizing. I was in my 20s living my best life. According to all sources, Y2K was ending the world in just a few years, and I was determined to go out with a bang. <laughs> my nights were filled running the streets with my first group of New York City friends that post-college group who knows you separate from your past. We were like Charlie's angels, except there were four of us. And we were all Farrah Fawcett. <laughs> <laughs> it was the first time I began regularly referring to boys as girls, and there was a liberating freedom in that wordplay because those three really were definitely my girls. We worked nights in smoke-filled bars and restaurants because it, it was the 90s, and our shenanigans would typically begin around midnight, spent in an East Village in Chelsea that still had grit and rough edges and a Christopher Street pier that was not for the faint of heart. We four would stumble from bar to bar, admiring beautiful boys along the way, and everywhere that Mary went, a drag queen was sure to go. <laughs> Fearless, six-foot-tall, men 
and seven-inch heels with crackling folding fans and mascara for days. My favorite was Mona Foote, black, badass, shady, and known to do 70s soul numbers as part of her routine. She was a regular at the newly opened Barracuda, and I was hooked. With the raunchiest of acts, bulging biceps, and a razor-sharp wit, she represented a freedom I hadn't yet realized existed. The kind where a black guy with blue lipstick wearing a cute dress with a clutch purse was the butchest person in the room. Her stage performances were mesmerizing. High kicks the likes of which the Rockettes could only dream, and a metal tip bucket that might be hurled in your direction if you tried to start some shit. <laughs> From her, I learned that a perfectly delivered turn of phrase has the same effect as a direct slit to the throat, and that a stiletto could be used to gouge out an eye if somebody felt like trying it. In post-performance drunken conversation, I once said to her, you're so brave. I could never stab someone with my shoe. <laughs> she looked at me and said, trust me, bitch, the day will come. <laughs> if anything, she taught me resilience. The recognition that you're stronger than you think and perfectly within your right to remove your earring, strike a warrior pose, and throw down if need be. If I could summon even an ounce of the power I believed her to have, I was sure I'd be all right. One lazy summer afternoon, my then boyfriend and I headed to Boston Market on 23rd and 8th Avenue to get a bite before we went to the movies. Young, in love, and carefree, we got our food and descended to the windowless lower level where other folks were sitting and eating. We settled into a booth and leaned in for a kiss, unscripted, spontaneous. And then I heard a snap. Get the fuck out of here with that shit. At first, I didn't know where it was coming from. I looked to my right, and there was an old lady staring at me, but she was busy deboning a chicken leg. <laughs> You're disgusting. I searched for the voice. Then two tables behind me, I saw him. Early 30s to my 24. Same height and build. Sitting with what I assumed to be his wife and six or seven year old kid. Yeah, you, faggot. We don't want to see that shit. My boyfriend grabbed my hand and suggested we leave. He didn't feel like getting into it. But in that moment, a spirit took over, an energy. All of the me's that had ever been bullied in life united in a come to Jesus moment and whispered in my ear, remember who you are, remember your name, you are Rob Lee Davis of the house of bitch cutting. <laughs> I felt myself removing my earring and going into warrior pose. In my mind, I took off my heels, though I was actually wearing sneakers. I looked him dead in his eye and said, fuck you. 
and all hell broke loose. Boston Market of Chelsea was not ready for this smell. <laughs> went flying everywhere. Macaroni and cheese in one corner, potato salad in another, bits of white rice and brown gravy scattered all over the floor. The guy's wife was on the sidelines cheering him on to fight me, and I started cursing her out fluently. <laughs> Some people say men shouldn't curse at a woman. I'm not one of those people. <laughs> the little kid looked genuinely frightened, and I felt sad that he was about to witness his daddy getting his ass kicked. <laughs> we were at each other's throats and determined to leave a devastating mark on the other. My boyfriend, 6'2", 210 pounds, did his best to stand between us, but this was a battle to the death. Lip syncing for your life wasn't a cultural thing then, but that's exactly what it felt like we were doing. If I knew how to do a split, I would have. <laughs> Someone must have told the manager because he came running downstairs and finally separated us. To my great surprise, he surveyed the situation and actually sided with me. I don't know if he was gay. Okay. <laughs> Had dealt with this guy before or if it was the end of his shift and he just wanted to go home. But he made the decision to make the guy, girl, and kid leave and apologize to us. The rarity of that gesture at that moment in time wasn't lost on me. Someone defended my sexuality. We finally sat back down and finished our food. My boyfriend trying to decipher who this person was sitting in front of him. <laughs> Me realizing all of the eyes that had been watching, and Chicken Bone Lady giving me a thumbs up from her table. <laughs> Eventually, we headed upstairs to leave. I didn't know if the bully would be waiting outside, but I was ready. When we exited, he was nowhere to be found. I heard my boyfriend breathe a sigh of relief. And on that afternoon, sunset approaching, I stepped onto 23rd Street with a renewed sense of pride, stronger than I knew myself to be. Think twice before you snap in my direction. Turns out those drag queens taught me well. Next up, we revisit a show from our previous longtime home, Jimmy's Number 43 in the East Village. Author Nicholas Maestros writes of unexpected revelations during a visit with his mother in Collecting, read for us here by his story partner, Jeff Wills, as part of our outdated show. Collecting. My mother has a pen pal. I didn't know this about her. Not until this morning when she told me that he, the pen pal, would be coming to the house today. His name is Adam. You remember Adam, my mother said, which is, I suppose, true. I knew he was the son of my mother's childhood friend, Mary Ann, and I knew that Mary Ann had died some years back, which is apparently when the letters began. I also knew that shortly after his mother had passed away, Adam was in a storm, a bad one. It took the house. Spared only the walls of the bathroom he was hiding behind, scared and huddled and clutching a photo album. The photo album. Photos of the woman who had told him exactly what to do in the case of a tornado. 
Adam is 25 now, a few years younger than me. I have a hard time imagining my mother writing to him at a computer or sitting with a slip of stationery in her lap forming the salutation, Dear Adam. How often, I wonder, how many letters? It is a hot summer day in Xenia, Ohio. Our windows are open, so we hear when his car pulls up the hill. My mother, who's been moving all morning, little household tasks that will make her feel as though she isn't waiting, goes to open the door as though she might as well. She was on her way to the bedroom anyway. I'm not sure I should join her there for whatever moment they're about to have and stay with my book at the kitchen counter. My mother laughs, and then the back of her shirt flutters as she waves. I hear someone call her Sharon. She turns to me, no longer pretending there had been anything else on the docket for this day. She tells me to come on. I try to remember if I've ever met Adam. Uh, scratch that. I know I've met him a long ago trip to Marianne's house in Tiffin, though now it is like we're calling someone else's memory. Told so many times it becomes your own. A boy in the backyard, on the porch, something cupped in his hands. What? A boy, turning, barely turning, not wanting to give up his attention to say hello. Perhaps it was my sister who went to Tiffin that day. Of course, you know Nick, my mother says after they hug. According to her, I was there. I shake Adam's hand. It is a weak shake, which makes me wonder how much he'd wanted to meet me, though it may just be part of his demeanor. He is skinny, and his checkered shirt is large on him. His hair is cut simply and clean, and his voice is small, his eyeline loose. He is not here to be noticed, but what I do notice immediately, though my mother has never suggested it, is that Adam is gay. My mother takes Adam on a tour of the house. Conversation is light, sprinkled with tiny updates on Adam's life. It hasn't been long since his last letter. I learned that he is about to attend a school for mortuary science, which I find unusual. <laughs> but I don't ask about it, mostly because my mother takes it in stride. It's nothing new. Also, it's not to disturb my mother's efforts to keep things lively, fun. Still, as we move through the garden outside and listen to the names of flowers, there is a tension sense of delay. There will be more to this visit than tours and platitudes, and they know it. They savor it. My mother starts to redden from the heat, as she does. Coffee, she suggests. Iced coffee. Adam doesn't drink coffee, but he'll take a glass of water. Inside, the three of us, the two of them and I, sit at the kitchen table. Did I ever tell you, my mother says, and I can feel it, can't I? A break in the tension? Did I ever tell you about Marianne's grandfather? No, Adam says, though I can tell by his smile that she has. <laughs> my mother shakes her head, already beginning to settle her vision into the middle distance, somewhere between memory and performance. Her grandfather, she says. Your great-grandfather. Oof, awful man. <laughs> he scared us both but Marianne she had some courage it might not have seemed so to you but when she was a girl seven or eight or so watch out he would sit there her grandfather he was a heavy fellow big pregnant belly 
sit there in his chair under his own weight, arm drooped over the side when it wasn't bringing a cigarette up to his face. He'd sit and smoke and stare off while the TV was going. And one day, Marianne just waltzes in, stands right in front of him, cranes herself over and screams, I hate your guts! <laughs> just like that. Just shrieks it. I hate your guts! And this deflated man suddenly fills up, cigarette in mouth, taking off his belt. And I yell, my mother takes a breath, Run, Marianne! <laughs> and she does! And he's chasing her, but he's bow-legged and slow, and I'm hanging back, yelling louder than I need to, cheering her on, and Marianne's face is all red, and she's happy and excited, dancing around the other side of the kitchen table, even though she knows she's in for a beating, just enjoying the moment. <laughs> My mother sits back. I know she can actually hear those voices. Marianne's yelling, I hate your guts! Her's yelling, run! <laughs> I know Adam can too. The stories continue. The time Marianne stayed over at my mother's house and peed on the new velvet couch. <laughs> Sharon! <laughs> Sharon, what do you got? I peed. <laughs> well, you just sleep in it. <laughs> <laughs> My mother dried the spot with an oscillating fan the next morning and told her parents. <laughs> the time they were home alone and found Marianne's grandfather dead in his bed, one foot sticking up straight from under the sheet. How <laughs> Marianne called her mother at work to tell her like it was any other thing. Yeah, he's dead, Mom. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Dead. <laughs> The time someone stole the clothes out of their lockers at the pool when they were 13, they had to walk across Tiffin in little bikinis. And we were developed. <laughs> How Marianne wore pink for my mother at her wedding. Even with that red hair, my mother says. She never got to return the favor. By the time Marianne got married, my mother was somewhere else with her own husband, her own kids. Their lives had veered. Listening to her speak, I understand why my mother wanted me here. These stories, they aren't only for Adam. Adam is the catalyst, the medium. These stories are really for her. My mother is in her middle 50s. She's been fighting multiple sclerosis for the last 10 years. The feeling in her arms and legs, the tips of her fingers, her tongue comes and goes, and now menopause. She's heavier. She looks tired, continually pulling back her graying hair in a sweat. These stories, Adam, they're letters. They are reminders of the girl and the woman she was before she was my mother. I am here now not to meet Adam. I'm here to meet her. But just as this new understanding completes itself, my mother leaves the table to use the bathroom. She stumbles a little on sleeping feet. Adam becomes aware of me again. New York, he says, which surprises me. Did I mention New York? That's exciting, he says. I can see it in a recent letter from my mother. Nick's moving to New York City in the fall. I feel flattered. With your partner, is that right? Yes, I say. We're excited. That's great. That's great. I ask him if he's dating anyone. He tells me about a man he's been seeing in Finlay, a, an art teacher, says it's going well. Is this trivial? 
I wonder? A bit easy? Moves? Programs? Dating? I, I'd like to say something about how remarkable this afternoon has been. How grateful, if grateful is the word, I am to sit here at the table with the two of them, but I'm not sure how it will sound. I'm also aware of a guilt. Here we are, the two of us, collecting the outdated visions of our mothers, only mine is still alive. Adam pulls out his laptop and fiddles with it until my mother returns. He wants to show her something. A home video. Adam, age three, telling his mother he's done eating. An old woman, his grandmother, sitting next to him smoking. And in the corner of the screen, a dustbuster cleaning the ashes and crumbs left by the grandmother. Is that Marianne? My mother screams, referring to the dustbuster. Adam nods, and my mother puts a hand on the table for support as she laughs. As they both laugh. The video is ten seconds long. Adam puts it on a loop. When was this? My mother asks. 88? 89? We were both clean freaks at about the same time. I was picking lint out of the carpet so often that Nick began to imitate me, picking up nothing. <laughs> the connections continue. Marianne, before she was diagnosed, wanted to be a nurse. My mother is a physical therapist. Marianne was diagnosed with scleroderma, an autoimmune disease, and three years later, my mother was diagnosed with MS. Some connections are not said, but they're there. I know my mother must be asking, if she hadn't known all along, how it was she and Marianne both raised gay sons. Marianne called me, my mother says, taking a turn from her usual high spirits. It had been years. She said she wanted to see me, and I knew. Here also a connection. According to my mother, Adam wanted her to be a pallbearer. He says he does not remember this, and I believe him. We're beginning to approach the real object of his journey. The missing pieces, the gaps, things my mother must not have mentioned in her letters. I'll never forget it, my mother says. You at the wake. You saw me from across the room just when I arrived. You walked right up to me, took my hand, and said, Let's go see my mom. You were strong, my mother says. You were twelve and stoic. He is stoic. My mother has been close to tears many times today, as have I, just listening, but Adam sits with solid posture, his hands folded before him. Stoic, yes, but gentle, seeming to say with every bend in the conversation, every new and creeping emotion, this is okay. I wasn't always strong, Adam says. It was scary seeing Mom on the ventilator. It was scarier seeing her when they took her off the ventilator. She struggled for breath. It took two weeks for her to die. It was better once she was on morphine. Why they didn't give it to her sooner, I don't know. Nothing happens fast in a hospital, I guess. The last thing I remember her saying, maybe two days before she passed, to the nurse, with barely any air, she said, This is my son. My mother puts her hand on his. 
things are, there are things happening here that I am unable to navigate. What I am collecting is facts. Adam and my mother are collecting as sensation, energy, God. I see images of the tangible, the, the lives of people as they sort them, catalog them, the dates of their histories. But it isn't history Adam is here to document. He already has the photographs, the old movies, the soap opera digest she left a doodle in along with the weather that day and a stain. He's here for something else. You know, I was there, my mother says, when she died. Adam shakes his head, his hands still folded under my mother's. He hadn't been there when Marianne died, and though his composure is steady, I see it in the seconds he takes before shaking his head there beneath. Something not altogether prepared for the moment he wanted. I'd like to tell you about it, my mother says. Adam nods. There again, the seconds before he nods. Adam and my mother leave the table, go out to the back patio. It wasn't discussed where they or I were to go, it was automatic. There can be no audience for this. Unsure of what else to do, I go down to the basement, to what is for the moment still my room, and I do what I know to do. I write it down. All of it. Everything that was said and what I imagine they're saying right now on the patio, I know there's no way to document it all. I'll do the best I can. Several weeks later, as I pack up my room, maybe for the last time, I find an old newspaper clipping. The Tiffin Herald, June 2001. A boy, maybe 14, pictured alone next to a house that has been demolished by a storm, and below the picture, a caption. My mother saved my life. I close it carefully into a manila folder and find a place for it in a box marked important. Finally, a superfan desperately wants to connect with the wonderful wizard of YouTube, Todrick Hall, and Ariel Mahler's story, Under the Rainbow, Over the Sea. Presented here by Ariel's story partner, Molly Talger, for our blowback show. Under the rainbow, over the sea. Oh my god, oh my god, there he is. Todrick Hall has just come out from behind the curtain for the after show meet and greet, and he is gorgeous. He's right there, he's literally a few feet away. That's really him. And he's shorter than I imagined, but that's okay. And oh my god, he's so much more beautiful in real life. I catch myself looking around meekly. Okay, stay cool, breathe. I must look ridiculous. Is this how the Little Mermaid felt when she first laid eyes on Prince Eric? I've never seen a human this close before. He's very handsome, isn't he? These days, all pop stars have their crew of die-hard fans. Gaga has her little monsters, Bieber's got believers, Beyonce has her beehive, and as for me, I am a toddler, and we don't play. So, 
There I am, a 20-something toddler, standing in a line of middle school girls in blue and white checked Dorothy print dresses, ruby red sequin sneakers, wicked witch green face paint, and all manners of lion and tigers and bears, oh my. Different though we may be, we're all in line for the same reason, to see the wonderful wizard of YouTube, Todrick Hall. Are you noticing a theme here? Todrick's latest show, Straight Outta Oz, is an autobiographical concert musical in which Todrick uses the story and characters of The Wizard of Oz as a metaphor to tell the story of his own life as a gay black man from Texas. And I've seen it now four times, but there's nothing like your first time. I've been a toddler for several years. I can probably quote at least five of his YouTube videos word for word, but I didn't cross into superfan status until I saw Straight Outta Oz. I had no idea the kind of impact this show was having on me. I was blown away. So when right after the curtain call, Todrick addressed the audience saying, I can't say much about this yet, but New York, after this tour ends, I am going to be moving in right here in the Big Apple to work on something very exciting. What? He's moving to New York? This is my chance. Do you think? Oh my God, maybe we could work together on something. Maybe he'd guest star in the web series I'm directing. And that's not all, he continues. I love New York so much that I am going to take a photo with every person who buys one of my posters here tonight. Oh shucks. I bet he says that to all the major metropolitan areas. <laughs> so, as I stand there now in line to meet him, my heart is racing and my mind is running and there's three people in front of me, two people, one, and then it's my turn. Todrick! I managed to blurt out, I just want to say how much of an inspiration you are to me. What's your name, he asks. Oh my god, he asked my name! I bet he doesn't ask everyone their name. He must really think I'm, like, cool or something. <laughs> I'm Ariel, I said, like the mermaid. See? I even have a little mermaid watch. And as I hold out my wrist to show him, I feel like I'm bearing a piece of my soul. I love it, he says. As we turn to the camera, I feel him place his warm and beautiful hand on my chest, right where my heart was before he melted it with a smile. <laughs> I want to bathe in this moment forever. Nothing else matters. It's just me and Todrick and a flash. And before I know it, it's over. I'm walking away from him, and he's greeting the next eager fan in line. Wait, that was it? No, there was so much more I needed to say. I watch in slow motion as my feet parade away from him. I'm able to stay. I'm willing to go. Maybe I could run back and, I don't know, say something else. I could give him my number, maybe, and he'd call me later tonight, and we'd chat, shoot the breeze a little, and I could tell him all the things I wanted to say. I'd tell him the story of my little mermaid watch, how I got it as an affirmation of my true name, my true identity, Ariel. My male birth name had never worked for me. I never really felt like a man, and Ariel just fits so much better. Not only was there the Little Mermaid connection, but it also references one of the original genderless literary pioneers, Ariel from Shakespeare's The Tempest. When I saw that watch in all of its cheap and tacky $10 Target glory, I knew that I had to buy it. The watch would be my own private reminder of who I am and the journey ahead. If only I'd had the time to tell all this to Todrick. Maybe we would have understood me better. Or maybe I should have emphasized how much of an influence he'd been on my life. I wanted him to know. I needed him to know, but now it was too late. Well, I knew that he would be in Philly next weekend. So of course, 
bought another ticket. I had to see him again, but beyond that, I needed him to see me, not just as another anonymous toddler, but as the complex and layered person that I am. Didn't he get it? I was different. I really understood him. We had so much to connect about. I had to find a way to impress him. I had one week to figure out how. What did I know about Todrick Hall? How could I stand out from the crowd? Well, one thing I know for sure is that he absolutely loves the Wizard of Oz. Straight Out of Oz was, after all, an homage to his favorite childhood story, and I can definitely relate. My fantasy land wasn't over the rainbow, though. Mine was under the sea. I watched Disney's The Little Mermaid probably every day of my life from age five to about, well, I watched it a lot. In fact, some of my earliest childhood memories are of me dancing around the playroom and singing, part of your world. The playroom was painted a bluish green, perfect for my elaborate imagination to create Ariel's underwater kingdom. I used to wrap a towel around my waist. That was my tail. And I would sashay and chante around the room, flipping my fins and jumping and dancing. There were a few parts of the movie I could never watch. Ursula the Sea Witch. Every time she came on screen, I ran out of the room crying and had to wait for my mom or dad to tell me, it's okay, she's gone. It got so bad that I used to make my parents buy copies of the Little Mermaid picture books just so I could deliberately go through page by page and rip out all the pictures of Ursula that appeared in there as though it was my personal mission to rid the world of Ursula one book at a time. <laughs> but Ursula aside, I loved absolutely everything about that movie. And looking back on it now, it's not hard to see why. I identified with Ariel. I saw myself in her. As mermaid Ariel rescued snarflats and dinglehoppers from wrecked ships, <laughs> real-life Ariel pilfered Barbie shoes and floral scrunchies from their best friend's house. As mermaid Ariel dished her father's concert to adventure with her friends, real-life Ariel gave up karate and soccer to pursue music and theater. As mermaid Ariel longed to be a part of the human world above, Real-life Ariel knew that they could never be a part of the world that they most saw themselves in. Because it's undeniable. The Little Mermaid is practically begging to be remade into a trans fairy tale. <laughs> Young mermaid assigned at birth strongly identifies with the human world and sees herself as a human, despite her community telling her she's a mermaid. <laughs> She defies her family's expectations, undergoing a process of transition through which she's able to fully live out her human existence and be a complete person. Sound familiar? I thought I should tell Todrick about these comparisons. How uncanny was this? He saw himself in the story of the Wizard of Oz. I saw myself in the Little Murray. That connected us for sure. So I wrote him a long and poetic letter, laying out these semi-parallel journeys and expressing to him how similar we really were. But that wasn't enough. Any poor, unfortunate soul can write a letter. I had to do more. I noticed that in many of Todrick's videos, he wore a baseball cap engraved with a three-digit number, which, just enough internet stalking later, I came to realize represents the area codes of various cities he's lived in. 806 for Plainview, Texas. 310 for Los Angeles, 714 for Anaheim, etc. So what did I do? I ran down to that same Target where I bought the watch. This time I bought a solid black baseball cap and a carton of hundreds of silver plastic rhinestones. 
pulled out the trusty glue gun, and painstakingly bejeweled a sparkling 212 right on the cap. I figured, he's moving to New York, right? This will be his welcoming gift. I tucked the letter into the inner seams of the cap, and I brought it with me, along with the poster I'd bought in New York, down to Philly. Just like last time, I wait in line, maybe even more nervous than before, if that was possible. Is this how Mermaid Ariel felt when she was on her way to meet Ursula for the first time? Could this be the moment that changes my life forever? Three people in front of me, two people, one, and then it's my turn. I stumble up to Todrick, and I'm on a mission. I don't have much time. I swear he recognizes me from last time. Good to see you, he exclaims. You wouldn't say good to see you unless you remembered someone, right? <laughs> Hi, Todrick. Um, I have something for you. I hold out the hat. He takes it. I wanted to make you a, um... There were so many versions of what I was going to say bouncing around in my brain that my mouth couldn't figure out which to pick. It's, um, congratulations or welcome to New York. I trail off. I feel a hot flush explode in my cheeks. I feel like the little mermaid right when she's about to finally kiss Eric, but the sun sets a moment too soon. Ursula's terrifying voice floods my ears. You're too late! (laughs) (laughs) We pose for the photo. Something about the way Tadric holds my hat up during the photo has a rehearsed feel to it. How many... How many fan gifts does he get in a night? My question is answered as I watch him toss the hat into a large plastic trash bag, presumably filled with all of his other fan-made presents. I hadn't noticed that detail last time. I see it fall in slow motion, and with it, all of my dreams of a happily ever after that would never be. Well, this is anticlimactic. (laughs) They say you should never meet your heroes. I'm starting to understand why. Turns out when you pull back the curtain, the man standing behind is nothing more than a, well, to steal from the scarecrow, a humbug. When telling the story of his life, Todrick makes it look so easy, so magical. It's a musical, after all. He doesn't paint his life as completely void of obstacles, quite the contrary, but his perseverance. When faced with challenges, Todrick never backed down. He always seemed to have that, I don't give it, attitude, propelling him to defy gravity, no matter the consequences. I'm sure that to Todrick, his story is still ongoing. But to me, the version of his life that I see is whole. It has a beginning, a middle, and an end. He's been able to curate the exact version of that story that he wants to tell. Straight out of Oz literally ends with Todrick singing, I'm coming home, as he clicks his heels three times. Meanwhile, I'm still lost under the sea. I'm trying to find my legs. Glinda has told me to follow the yellow brick road, but now I can't even seem to find it. Walking on my own two feet is harder than I thought it'd be. Are the flying monkeys really as dangerous as everyone says? And how am I supposed to communicate when the sea witch still has my voice? Am I mixing metaphors too much? (laughs) Welcome to my life. It's great to have idols, people we look up to, stars who we admire, but there's an important difference between admiration and projection. I can't live my life through Todrick Hall's journey. I'm on a journey of my own, and the only way for me to get home, wherever that may be, is to take my own path there. The only power Todrick Hall ever had over me was the power I gave him, and the only power I have 
is the power I give myself. That's it. Thanks for joining us for this installment of No, You Tell It. Visit us on the web at knowyoutellit.com.